This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. As you might be able to tell from the sound in the background, we're recording live at the MEC conference, and that's MEC, or Microcomputers in Education Conference. And my guest is Peggy Coulomb, the host of the Science Studio show at Arizona State University. Welcome, Peggy. Hey, Doc. Both Peggy and I began podcasting just a few months ago, and I thought maybe it might help to talk about some of the things we've learned and what we're experiencing as we've started out. We're hoping that this might help some other people. So I was going to jump right in and discuss a question with Peggy, but I thought one of the things that might be missing is knowing exactly what a podcast is and what it isn't. Just to let people know, just because you record something to an MP3 file and you put it up on the web, doesn't mean that you're going to actually be doing a podcast. You actually need to have a collection of content, and in this case, you might distribute it through something like iTunes, I had Barnaby coming over and checking up on my microphone. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of fun when you're doing it live. Anyway, the idea is that you're going to be putting up content in a regular manner. So if you don't have a constant flow of content, you're not necessarily doing a podcast. You can still do a recording, but you're not necessarily doing a podcast. With that said, for our first question, Peggy, let's start with creating podcasts. When you began podcasting, what was the hardest part? The hardest part, I think, was just getting used to the concept of talking into a microphone and thinking about what I'm going to say in a, in a different way. Since I'm used to writing writing on paper and computers, the way you express yourself verbally can be completely different than the way you might write out something. I guess one of the things I found very difficult wasn't necessarily the recording. It was listening to my voice. Now, I love your voice, but like most people, when you hear your own, sometimes you have a tendency to <laughs> not like that voice. I, I'm getting used to it, uh, and I think it works well. If, you, you know, if you're stuck with it, you've got to go with it. What do you like most about podcasting? I think the most interesting thing about podcasting, besides learning the technology and learning something new, has been the time I've been able to sit and talk with researchers and sort of get to know them as personalities and find out what path took them to this kind of science they're doing, as well as what fuels their enthusiasm for the kind of work they're doing. And I I think being with people like that who are creative generates a kind of positive energy in my own life. I'd agree, and I I think that's the other part is that you get this, the enthusiasm, you get to listen to their voice, which is good. I I want to mention again, I I said at the beginning, it's Science Studio. If you want to listen to some of Peggy's podcasts, you'd want to go to the Soul site, which is souls.asu.edu, and then underneath that, if you do a slash and you put podcast, you'll get directly to her show that she's been doing. There's already eight uh, episodes up. And uh, they'll soon be be nine. Mm. Are there things you don't like about podcasting? I don't think there's anything I don't like about podcasting. I think it's, it's, you know, it's been an evolving process in learning to do things better more than anything else. We stepped very blindly into this, if I remember correctly. (laughs) And and, uh, not necessarily knowing a lot of the the technical aspects about it. And it's not as simple as picking up a recording device and, and talking. It's learning how to position the microphone and, and how to do the editing and how to make it an interesting product, something that people really want to listen to. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It really is interesting being live. I love these sounds that are in the background. Have you changed the way you prepare for podcasting now? Absolutely. Uh, initially, I wasn't really quite sure how to, to put a script together. Um, I wasn't really even sure the kind of questions I would ask. I was so used to sitting down and speaking with professors with a tape recorder and doing interviews in that way, the thought of having a microphone sitting in front of me and 
it kind of inhibited my my desire to speak. And let's face it, I, I really don't play much of a role when I'm doing an interview for something that I write. And so it put me in a, in a completely different place. In terms of preparation, yeah, now I write things out. I, I speak it aloud in my office. I'm sure people walk by and watch me waving my arms and and wonder what I'm doing, but it's that I'm, I'm trying to hear how it'll come out, how the final product will come out, and that has definitely evolved over time. I'd, I'd have to say that's true. For me as well, I really had to work on the fact that you don't want to be reading something. It's that natural speech that you're working on. I started off with uh, doing a script, and I still do. In, in front of me right now, I have this script with columns, and it has some basic questions that I want to ask you. It doesn't mean that I follow it exactly. It depends on how the discussion goes. And I also highlight the questions with yellow where they are versus some of the background information I might want to use. And that's what served me well. Not everybody does it the same way. No, I mean, my, my, my scripts are just kind of line items more than anything else. Do you find yourself speaking differently when you do podcasts? There's no question that I speak differently. I think everybody has a lot of inflection in their voices. Uh, voices? A voice. In your case, it's voices. We'll get to that later. But in, in my case, I, I think it's almost like you do a little bit of acting because you need to have the inflection. You need to bring across your point in ways that, you, you know, if you're on TV, you've got plenty of body language. But if you're on radio or podcasting, it has to come in the tone of your voice. You know, how soft it is, how loud it is, and all aspects of it come out tonally in that way. So absolutely, I have a different voice. I've noticed that uh, the very first podcast I was really afraid of, of letting loose, so to speak. I didn't want to sound silly, but I wanted to have some kind of a continuity going on. As we've gone on, and become much more relaxed, as you've talked about. And I think the biggest thing is allowing yourself to pause. We have a tendency when we're doing things under a microphone that we feel like to, like to fill all the space, all the air. That's not natural. Yeah, I think the one other thing is, is I, I had to learn to be quiet when someone else was talking. Because <laughs> I was used to, you know, in a usual conversation, you kind of pop in there and you go, yeah, yeah, I felt that same way. But you can't do that when you're doing a podcast because you overrun what someone else is saying. Right, and if you overrun them, we can't edit very easily. So if you talk... You, Peggy. You want me to and talk I, now? And I talk yeah, at the same it's time. It's really a problem, yeah. If we wanted to edit that last little bit, there's no way. You have to work with this little dance when you're doing these interviews. Um, what do you think is the future of podcasting? Gosh, you know, I don't know. There's so many technologies that come and go. I, I can't even begin to guess what niche podcasting will fill and how long it'll stay and, and what its future will be. Uh, I think that the thing that makes it most interesting, like a lot of the changes in journalism today, is that it's putting sort of the power into the hands of the people. Anybody can podcast. Anybody can put it up. You can talk about anything for, for the most part. It might give it some staying power in, in that regard. I do know that I read somewhere that after about three months, 90% of all podcasts cease and desist. We're not going to do that with Ask a Biologist, and we're not going to do that with Science Studio. It's that sustainability that you want to be able to do. That makes it exciting also because someone, again, can subscribe to Science Studio, for example, on their iTunes with their iPod. They don't have to go check and see when Peggy's done her latest show, even though there's two each month. They're not always exactly the same time. It downloads it automatically, and they're out on the road, which I think is great. You could be exercising, you could be biking, you could be traveling up into the mountains, and you can be listening to Peggy. 
<laughs> well, maybe. I think I think one other thing that makes podcasting unique, and maybe maybe both radio and podcasting is uh, unique, is that it gives a a voice to authors, artists, researchers, and for me at least, it changes how I perceive the work that they do, um, how I feel about them. Even if I though I don't know them, I get a sense of who they are from the way they use their voice. And for example, if you had Robert Frost reading his Road Less Traveled, or Road Not Taken, excuse me, yeah. then it takes on a completely different persona. Compl- almost. Persona. Yeah. It, it comes alive in a way that it can't possibly come alive with me reading it. it. It takes on a sort of a richness and a texture and ex- expression and personality that uniquely reflects Robert Frost. And that I could never possibly capture. And I think in that way, radio and podcasting have something to offer that's, that's going to stay well beyond any other kind of medium. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be something that, again, as you mentioned earlier, we'll see if it stays. We'll see how well they hold up. As a tool, I've always wondered, you know, when we talk about education, um, what do you think podcasting has to offer to the educational realm? And what I would call general knowledge shows. I guess the thing, again, I would point to is that aspect of giving a voice to the researcher or the artist. That personality, that creative mind comes through in the way that they use their language, where they make their pauses, where they make their emphasis. And I think that's valuable historically. I think it's valuable as an education tool. It gives you, I think, a window of insight into how someone's constructed the creative world beyond what's on a written page. Right. I also need to mention that Peggy's had some really interesting guests. Uh, we've had a skydiver. <laughs> we have a painter. Uh, and quite a few other background hobbies or interests that you don't usually attribute to scientists. Uh, I think that's equally important with these shows is that you do get a feeling of what this person and about this person and that it is a person. They take on a three-dimensional aspect, yeah, as opposed to it all being about that one piece of the work. And often when you read an article, for example, about somebody, mm-hmm. um, it's only about some small window, some very tiny aspect of who they are. In fact, who they are might not even play a role in it. It may just be what they're doing. And I think podcasting, because you're talking to someone, you talk about topics that normally wouldn't get covered in written medium. Right. Uh, I also think it helps in the educational realm that because some people learn very well by reading and others learn a little bit better, they're audio learners. They pick up a lot of their information through just listening. And so it's nice to have that other vehicle easily accessible, easily, easily made, actually. You, know, you can produce a podcast on truly a shoestring. We've been talking about what it's been like for the two of us to get started. Um, do you have some advice for someone starting out? Because it's really fresh for us. <laughs> Advice. I don't know if I'm in a position to give advice right now. Uh, I think I'm still very much a student of the medium myself. But I think the things that have helped are going and listening to other sites, seeing what other people are doing, what tricks they employ, what other sounds they might bring in, like the ambiance behind us, the things that they do with their voice and the way they talk to their, their um, subject. <laughs> that it gives them some insight on, on how to improve their own product. And then, of course, taking a class. We're, we've been taking a class with Pauline Davies, who is in the 
Hugh Downs School of Communication. Human communication. Communication <laughs> at, at ASU. She's really opened up a whole world because she is a BBC broadcaster. A whole world of, of how people do this professionally. I was fortunate enough to actually have Pauline and another well-known broadcaster from ABC, which is the Australian broadcasting system. His name is Robin Williams, not to be confused with a comedian. Actually, his we're, get this. Actually, his first name is R O B Y N. Easy for me to say, right? Which brings us actually to another area here: the the, the concept of editing. Uh, when you're not doing something live like we are, uh, some of these things you can actually cut out. Uh, that we might might leave in and might, might not. So if this sounds really clean later, it means I was able to edit it quite well, and if not, it means the ambiance was making it more difficult. What have you learned about the editing? Well, thank goodness for editing. That's what I've learned about editing. It, things like saying, um, um, you never, you're never so uh, aware of all your little verbal tics as when you listen to a recording of yourself. Some people go for the um. um another favorite, I believe, was so... So I hear, yeah, we, we did that one a lot. Uh, I think it makes you more aware of how you speak and how you're perceived. And I can't really say much more about editing other than, yeah, it's, it's, it helps you understand what you're trying to do with your medium better by doing it. Right. And we found that uh, we were actually using some free software at first called Audacity. That's actually what we're recording today with. It's free. You can get it on the web. But there are quite a few other packages out there as well that make it really easy to fix some of those uh, ticks, as you mentioned, that uh, may become a little bit more annoying. I usually ask three questions of the scientists that I have on this show. And in your past life, you were a scientist. Yep. Okay. But you've actually, your life now has shifted gears. And you're now more of a writer. Maybe you always were a writer, but... When did you first know you wanted to be a writer? The truth is is that I was interested in both science and writing since I was a kid. And it was, uh, at some point I had to make a choice. And it never, I honestly said it, it never occurred to me to go into anything other than science. I think part of that's because at the time when I was growing up, the options for women were somewhat limited. I didn't want to be a teacher and so it never occurred to me to be a novelist. I had, you know, my dad was a very practical guy. He was an industrial chemist. And he said, uh, you know, choose something you can make money at, Peggy, you know, that you love. And so science was my second love in some respects. And the one that puzzled me more. It wasn't as easy for me, let me put it that way. And so that's the one I chose. I wrote plays when I was five, six, seven. I mean, it's always been an aspect of my life, but I didn't turn it into a career until recently. The other thing I always am curious about, I usually take with my scientists, I say, uh, you no longer can be a biologist or a scientist, and you have to pick some other career. Well, I have to take two away from you. I have to take, away, <laughs> I have to take your writing away from you, and I have to take your science away from you. If you couldn't do those two, what would you do? Wow. I think, honestly, I would have tried to be a professional athlete if I had had a third option. Yeah, pretty much. An athlete. You actually have a hobby that fits in that realm. Yeah, I compete in outrigger canoe. But when I was younger, I was a runner, and that probably would have been what I had pursued. Can you just tell us just a little bit about outrigger canoe? Outrigger canoe. Picture the South Seas and flowing water and crashing waves and six people in a boat about 40 feet long 
who are flailing madly trying to make their way over the surf out into the open ocean. And that's kind of it. And you actually started this in an unusual place, Washington, D.C.? I did start it in Washington, D.C., and yeah, it was a pretty strange place to be starting something like Outrigger Canoe, which is a, a sport that comes out of the cultural traditions of Hawaii and Polynesia. Um, but they had, it had been in the United States since about, on the West Coast, continental United States, since about 1950. And at some point, some crazy person said, hey, let's take it east. And so they went east. And Washington, D.C. was one of the first places where there was an outrigger canoe club, particularly for women. And we were one of the first pioneers, so to speak, in the 1990s. Marvelous. Well, this has been fun recording at the MAC conference. It's added to our list of things we're learning as we're doing podcasting. We certainly have had to venture out from our very comfortable studio we do have our trusted sound engineer, Jason. Woo! Yeah, Jason's over there working with us, so we feel real comfortable there. But we also have about several hundred other people milling around, so this is definitely a different atmosphere for us. With that said, I want to thank my guest, Peggy Coulomb, for visiting with us today. Thanks. I'll see you in about five minutes. Signing off from this show is kind of easy in the, in the studio, but here it's a little different. You have been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Peggy Coulomb, the host of the Science Studio show, that is broadcast from the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. And even though our program is usually not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology with our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology. <laughs>